Welcome to the Pretty Powerful Podcast, where powerful women are interviewed every week to share real inspiring stories and incredible insight to help women or anyone break the barriers, be a part of innovation, shatter the glass ceiling, and dominate to the top of their sport, industry, or life's mission. Join us as we celebrate exceptional women and step into our power. And now, here's your host, Angela Gennari. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Angela Gennari, and this is the Pretty Powerful Podcast. And I am sitting here with Miss Allison Battelle. And I am super excited because she is bringing a wealth of knowledge, and I'm very um, happy about what we're going to be discussing today. So welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Allison so that everybody is aware of um, who we're speaking with today. So Allison Battelle is an Atlanta native and has been in the commercial real estate industry for 21 years. She is a senior vice president and principal with Collier's Atlanta. Throughout her career, she has developed a passion for mentoring and supporting other career women. In 2020, she founded the Women's Collective, a 501c3 C6, bringing together C-suite and executive level women leaders for an exclusive experience. In just two short years and during a pandemic, Allison has grown the organization to 130 members and raised sponsorship money for 2022 programming, supporting the pillars of workplace, education, and mentorship. She has been married to her husband, Phil, for 21 years, and they have two teenage sons. Welcome, Allison. Thanks again for having me. It's great to be here. Tell me, um, you are in commercial real estate, which is a very male-dominated industry. Am I correct? You are very correct. And how did you get your start there? And what what prompted you to want to go into that industry in particular? So I'm actually, as you mentioned, I'm an Atlanta native. And my dad was in commercial real estate development. And his um, older brother was in general contracting. So when I graduated from college, I said, I'm going to get as far away from real estate as I can. <laughs> I grew up in it. And ultimately, I wound up in back uh, in Atlanta in 2001 and started my career in real estate. And I will tell you, it's, it's an amazing industry. Um, yeah. And I really was... Pleased to be able to, after working in some other industries, to get into this industry. It's been a 21-year amazing journey. So. Wow. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I appreciate that. So I can I can imagine that going into commercial real estate um, and dealing with a lot of is it builders and um, male commercial real estate agents that you must have had quite a bit of competition out there. Did anyone step up to mentor you in this time? Did you did you find that you had a lot of guidance or were you really kind of off on your own to tr- figure it out? So I'll kind of answer that in, in two ways. Um, I was fortunate to join a team when I started at my first company in 2001. So I did have some good mentorship internally. But what I found challenging is that there were not very many women in my business. And so as I became a young mom and Began to sort of manage the daily ins and outs of uh, juggling uh, the three ring circus, I used to call it. Right. Uh, it it became really hard because there weren't women that I could call on, and so I feel like the, what we did is there were several women that were peers of mine, and we all worked together and built sort of a peer mentorship. Okay. Because many of us stayed in the business. What tended to happen is women that were older than me in commercial real estate had either chosen not to have families or not to get married, or they may have only had one child because the demands are so great. Right. And so my generation of women, we were the first generation that came back to work with one or multiple children. And so I was able to really develop 
my sort of group of peer mentors. So I sort of had, I had both, but no formal program. Right, right. I understand. And you've done some pretty big deals. I was looking at uh, your resume and some of the things that you've done. And actually, I found this on the Collier site. Um, They are very proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) You've done some pretty significant deals in Atlanta. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Tell me about that process of finding these big deals and, you know, getting them to trust you to really be able to handle the whole thing start to finish. Sure. Yeah. It it took a long time to sort of build the skill set. And I spent a lot of time really perfecting early in my career the transaction side of the business, really becoming intimately knowledgeable on how to negotiate leases and to be a truly what I call a trusted advisor. And the other thing that I think has helped me be successful in commercial real estate is the trust factor. Yeah. Really taking the time to get to know my clients and building those relationships. And with that trust comes long-term relationships, which I've been fortunate to have many of those. Absolutely. So you touched on negotiation. So this is one of my favorite things to do in the whole world. I love a good negotiation. So tell me, um, what strategies would you give to people about how to be a good negotiator? So, you know, it's funny when I first came into the business having so few women, I was worried about getting a reputation, right, of being a woman. Um, I right. won't say the word that many people probably know I'm thinking right, right. now. But, but, <laughs> but, you know, but also not backing down and being shrewd in what I believe in. And so I really, I think when I give people advice on negotiation, there's always a middle ground. And I think you go in with a, you go in with, absolutely everything you want, but you know that there's some giveaways. So yeah. I think there's always got to be some things that you're willing to give on and know what's important. And I think that is what's important with your clients is really helping guide them on items. You know, we might get into a lease negotiation and have maybe 10 outstanding items that we've got to deal with. And what I'll say is let's talk about the ones that are most important to you. And let me advise you on you might think this item is important, but actually when you negotiate leases, you're negotiating a lot of hypothetical. Well, if this happens, we need this protection. Right. So really kind of helping walk them through the importance of where to where to fight and where to sort of give. Um, right. So that's that's probably my my best advice. Awesome. I love it. Yeah, I love to negotiate and I say the same thing. You know, you can both come out a winner in a negotiation. Right. You know, some things are going to matter more to other people. You can't have everything. You know, right. choose choose your battle, you know. Exactly. Like and so one of my one of my sayings that I say all the time is this is not the hill you want to die on, right? Right. So, right. right. <laughs> you know, is it that important to you that this is the hill you want to die on? And if it's not, let it go. Let that be part of the negotiation because maybe that is important to somebody else. That's right. So, That's right. so yes, I I, full, I fully agree with you that you know it, it's important to take into consideration what is important on both sides and find that middle ground That's because right. you know everybody thinks negotiation comes down to price and terms and that's not always the case, right? Sometimes it could be the amount of time it takes to close and the amount of you know the the, the terms of the lease in terms of how long it is and you know the upgrades and you know any little concessions that could be meaningful to somebody that may not cost you a lot in terms of time or money. So awesome. One of my partners that I worked with for many years, who's a mentor of mine, said to me very early on, always be thinking about how your deal is going to get in the ditch. As you're negotiating, even if things are going really well, always be thinking about how what could go wrong and be working through those possibilities so you're prepared. So Mm -hmm. absolutely. 
All right. So then you've spent a career, a great successful career in commercial real estate. And then you decide to take a little pivot and go into starting something called the Women's Collective. So tell me about your motivation behind that and what prompted you to do that at that time. Sure. So about 10 years ago, I'm a board member at the Atlanta Commercial Board of Realtors, and we're actually the largest commercial board in the country. Oh, wow. And um, one of my former partners, he was a managing partner at my previous firm, was very passionate around the diversity um, and inclusion in our industry. And so there was a big diversity initiative about 10 years ago. We were a little before our yeah, time with kind of what's happened in the last couple of years. So we started this diversity committee and really put a lot of energy in um, creating a diversity mentorship program. Okay. And so we were really, we, we built this program out and I've worked on it for over 10 years. And it was around um, women and people of color who... The real estate business is very, very um, familial and everyone knows everyone. And so if you don't grow up in real estate, you might not really even understand how to get into the business. And so we felt like there was this lack of diversity because people didn't have exposure to our business. So we built this diversity mentorship program and I spent 10 years developing it. Every year we would have greater than 50 candidates for for 12 spots. Wow. Um, So we spent a lot of time building curriculum around that. And I really got passionate around... This is this is where I can have an impact. This is where I can give back to the community. So in 2020, when I um, joined my new firm, um, they were super supportive around helping me do it for women in general. I really said, I've done a lot in my own industry, but now I want to take it bigger. I want to take it to the city of Atlanta. And I want to connect with other senior women. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring them together. And I want to figure out how we collectively, i.e. the Women's Collective, can influence change for women coming behind us. That's awesome. And, you know, before the podcast started, we were talking about how, you know, for a long time, when women had reached a certain status, their first inclination was not necessarily to pull up the women behind them because they had worked so hard to get there. They knew that their, their time in an executive level position, they had worked really hard to get there and they felt like they needed to protect their spot. Right. And so, um, I feel like there was a bit of territorial nature, I guess, to that because there were so few women in the executive level. And now we're starting to see a major shift. And that has been a huge blessing for for women to be able to say, look, this is not a competition. We all can be successful. So tell me how Women's Collective really kind of fosters that environment. Sure. So you're exactly right. I think for years it was, you know, sort of clawing to the top, right? Right. Now it doesn't have to be that way anymore, which is so great. So we really have three pillars that we're focused on at the Women's Collective. Okay. Mentorship is pillar number one. And we have just launched um, a program called Leaders on the Rise. And we have a mentorship program through the Women's Collective. We have 15 women who are between six and 12 years out of school. So we really wanted to get women that were in that first sort of decade of business Mm -hmm. that were starting their families and were starting to hit that place in life where maybe they need to pull back or maybe they need to just get out of the workforce. So that we feel like that's really a good time to to get to the, the women that might need mentorship. Right. The second thing we're doing is a lot around education. So we do programs during the year. We just had um, a panel in February for um, the exodus of women from the workplace. And we had four amazing panel members and over 50 women came to our breakfast. Wow. And we talked about some of the trends and things that we're seeing and what are organizations we had a... Um, we had a, a folks from Coca-Cola and the Weather Channel and, and other large firms talk a little bit about what they're doing yeah. um, company-wide and how are they supporting women. 
Um, and then the third thing is just the workplace, really just how do we as women learn to use our voice and to step yeah. up? A lot of times we're quote unquote, the onlys. We might be the only woman in the right. C-suite. I know you talked a little bit about being the only in meetings. Right. And sometimes it's intimidating. Right. So we've got to find the strength and the courage to stand up and ask mm -hmm. the hard questions and advocate for women in our organizations. Absolutely. So you mentioned the exodus of women from the workplace. Let's talk about that a little bit because that's really fascinating to me because, you know, I know that, you know, at a certain point, stage of life, a lot of women will choose to leave the workplace temporarily or permanently um, and, you know, to raise children, to be at home, to find another avenue. Why do you think that is? What, what is? what is causing this exodus in the workplace? So I think there's a couple of things. One thing that we talked about um, with this panel was the fact that women, and I mentioned it a few minutes ago, this first 10 years out of school and how women really do lose their confidence. And I think that's when they start exiting the workplace. I think okay. they get to a point where they say, and a lot of companies won't offer you a throttle back option. They won't say right. you can go part-time. And this is one of the things we talked about at the um, the panel was it's important for companies to offer people, maybe you want to go part-time for a few years. Right. And it's not just for women. It needs to be for the men too, I right? Agree. It needs men, men are probably afraid to ask for something part-time. Right. But I think in today's times, men and women are both in a lot of cases dual working families. So what if your wife is trying to get her master's degree? Or what if your wife has got a big job that she's been promoted into? Maybe you need to throttle back as a man to support your wife in her role and you need to do the carpool for a while or you need so it's it's becoming okay now and i think that's where we can support women right. is companies need to allow the the part-time or the reduced work hours for both men and women and because i think yeah. right because i think that's a big part of why women are leaving is they just get you get to a point where you say what's my priority right and you you've got to take care of your family that's always going to be your priority and so how do right. you do both and and the workplace sometimes is what is is the give. Well, and sometimes, you know, if, if a woman chooses not to have children, maybe it's she's trying to get an advanced degree. And, you know, she doesn't have the luxury of just, you know, like when I got out of college, I really wanted to go to law school, but I couldn't afford it. And but once I started working, I wanted to go back to law school, but it was so hard to find that time. Like I couldn't not work full time, but I also couldn't find the the energy, the space, the time to be able to work full time and go to law school. And so I never ended up going to law school. But it's one of my regrets that I never did. But it's it's those cases, you know, where if, if I had an employer who said, look, let's do flex time, you know, because again, back then, flex time wasn't really as as common as it is now. Since the pandemic, flex time has become probably first and foremost what people are looking for in their job. But uh at that time, you were expected to be in the office nine to five, you know, plus, you know, nine to five plus, you know, whether that meant you're working till seven that day or events or networking events or functions or whatever it is. And so, you know, having flexibility, I think, would, would encourage women to stay in the workplace more um, because you're right. I mean, when you're when you have small children at home and you're having to do, you know, whether it's carpool or um tutoring or helping with homework or activities, it's, it's overwhelming. So whether you are the mother or the father, it definitely, it does have a huge impact. And, you know, your time, 
becomes condensed. And so having flexibility, I think, would help tremendously with that. I tell my employees and, you know, management, I need 40 hours of work from you. If you can get 40 hours of work done in 20 hours, so be it. I just need 40 hours of work. Because to me, the production is more important than the time. I don't want to be a timekeeper, but I need I need a certain output. So if you're highly efficient with your time, fantastic. But, you know, that's kind of how I look at salaried uh, employees. So, well, one of the things we talked about was if, you know, if you lose women in that first 10 years, if they, if you don't give them that flexibility and you don't figure out a way to mentor and sponsor and keep them in the workforce, you lose them forever. Right. Because if woman's out of the workforce for 10 years, it's very hard to reenter when your kids are older. And I mean, I have two teenagers and I'm as busy as I've ever been. Right. And I've got one that drives, but it's still just, it's the reality of life. Right. And so I think that's why the mentorship and everything is so important in that first 10 years is to make sure that we're giving them the support they need, helping with the confidence building, helping them aspire and allowing them the opportunity to grow and still be able to do the, one of the women was talking about somebody on her team's training for an Ironman, a man man on her team (laughs) and has chosen to do more part-time work right now because he's training for it. So it's, again, we have to take away this image of that the reduced work schedule is a mommy track or a a woman track. It's an everyone track. It really is. And it's important for life balance. Let's be honest, because, you know, we don't want to get to that point where we we start enjoying our lives once we're retired, right? (laughs) Like we want to live our lives now while I have the energy and the time. (laughs) Exactly. You just need the time to be able to fit it in. And so, you know, when you devote too much time to work, you can definitely have an imbalance and then it affects every other part of your life, you know, whether it's stress, family, you know, travel, you know, enjoy life now while we while we have it to live. So, um, okay, so great. So tell me a little bit more about what inspires you. What inspires me? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I think that I'm inspired by the ability to have an influence, um, yeah. the ability to help other women. I think if I had had something like the Women's Collective you know, Leadership, our Leaders on the Rise program when I was in my 20s and early 30s, it would have yeah. been great. And I think what what we have to remember is that everybody's been through some some type of challenge. So you're yeah. not alone. I think sometimes it can feel, you can feel very alone when you're juggling a lot. And so I think that's that's probably something super important to to remember. Yeah, I say that um, challenges are the commonality. Right. Not everybody has a chance to be incredibly successful in their lives, but we've all overcome challenges. Sure. So speaking of that, tell me some challenges that you've had (laughs) in in growing your business and uh, whether it's, you know, the Women's Collective or commercial real estate or whatever, um, you know, led to you to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some of the things, you know, being in a a very male dominated business early on, I wasn't taken seriously. You know, right. I would I would make calls and they would people on the other end of the line would ask, "Well, who are you? What broker are you calling on behalf of?" And say, <laughs> no, I'm the broker. <laughs> and I was in my mid twenties and, right. and female, and there just weren't a lot of us. And so, you know, I think that was probably one big obstacle. I think not having formal mentorship programs was definitely an obstacle for me. And then I think the third thing that I really struggled with was being a working mom. I chose. Um, I, my husband traveled um, when my kids were little, and it was a lot. I mean, I yeah. was, I was, you know, I was driving an hour and a half one way to and from work to get them to daycare and downtown, downtown to the office, and then the reverse in the afternoons and wow. fighting traffic. And it just, it was, it was a choice I was making. But at that point in life, it felt like moment to moment, right? Like you, you couldn't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. So definitely, definitely, you know, 
challenges on those on those fronts for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, um, I know that as women, we tend to give our power away. And, um, you know, we, we say, oh, it's because my spouse did this, my family did this, you know, these doors were open because of this. And while all of that is very true and we don't get to where we are alone, um, tell me a time that you've given your power away and then another time that you've stepped into your power and what was the difference in the time? So that's, that's a really great question because it sort of folds into sort of my journey over the last three years. Yeah. So I spent 18 years at my last employer and because the years that I was there, I was raising my children. I, I said it was okay to take a more of a transaction role. Um, I was a little more behind the scenes, allowing, um, the men to be more forefront with the clients. And I just was, yeah, I was good at the transaction. Again, I think this gets back to the confidence issue of like, I was confident in the transaction side. I knew I could manage that. Right. So I didn't force myself to step outside of transactions. And so I think I allowed the power to be given away because mm -hmm. I, ch I made the choice to put myself in that position. And I think what was interesting is at the end of 2019, I sort of came to a place in my career where I said, I need to, I need to be, I need to be the one on the front lines. I need to be the one right. out there more. And it took me through about a six month journey where I wound up actually changing companies. And there was a lot that went into it, but I basically decided that I needed to get uncomfortable um, to grow myself. And yeah. that was really a part of it. So I felt like I took the power back when I made that change. I was in a very comfortable role. I had a great team. Right. I had everything that like people aspire to get to. Absolutely. But something was missing mm. and it was that power piece. Mm -hmm. And so it was a, it was a big, bold move to change after 18 years, but it has created an opportunity for me to really grow and I have really, um, I feel like I've really taken the power back by making that change. Absolutely. So. And I love that you talk about the confidence, right? The up and down of confidence. How can, you know, somebody who's young coming into their career, how do they maintain that confidence level? And is it possible to maintain that confidence when you're going through the trials of, of your career? Like, how do you maintain that level of, I deserve to be here, my voice deserves to be heard, you know, I want to step into my power? And how do you do that younger? Because I know that, you know, in later in life, it's easier. Sure. But how do you do that as a young woman? Well, I think that's the key. The key to that is to have a good mentor. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and I think, and I think people need to understand the difference between mentorship and sponsorship, right? Like okay. you need, you need a mentor, you need a, 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 and you may need, I had one friend say, you need a board of directors, okay. you need two yeah. or three or four or five or women mentors and, and, and a man or two in there as well. But that you can go to and say, here's what I'm struggling with. Because yeah. now that we're older and we have the advice where we can give, that's what we should be doing. And then I think you also need a sponsor in your organization. I think we talked a lot about the importance of asking to attend meetings. Maybe you don't say anything in the meeting, but asking to attend that meeting. And then people say, oh, I know Angela. She was in that meeting. She's very sharp. You you start to get noticed more, but you you need a sponsor, somebody senior that brings you to those meetings. And you yeah. might sit at the end of the table and not say two words, but people take notice of you. So I think it's, it's twofold, the mentorship and the sponsorship. Oh, I agree. Important. I agree. I love that. Yeah, I agree that having somebody who steps up with us, you know, kind of brings us into those opportunities is equally as important as somebody who guides us along the way. Right. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to have great mentors in my life. Um, but 
there are times when the opportunities were not presenting themselves. I had to open those doors myself. I had to create the opportunity, you know, and and that's, that takes a a level of kind of confidence, gut check moments where you're like, okay, here I go. (laughs) I'm going to create this opportunity and I might fall on my face and I might look silly, but if I don't, it's never going to happen. Right. And so that confidence, I think as a young woman, comes from creating enough of those opportunities for yourself and stepping into those roles where, uh, and I don't know if you've ever felt this or not, where you get imposter syndrome, you know, where you're in the room and you're like, do I belong here? (laughs) Have you ever experienced something like that? Absolutely. I mean, I think especially if you're in a room full of way more senior people than you are, you definitely feel that way. And, And you have to, again, to your point, confidence comes with experience. Yes. So that's, again, why I think women our age are so able to help the younger women because we can say to them, don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. I've been there. I know what it feels like. And you don't need to feel that way. You deserve to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people need to get over the idea that failing at something is fatal, right? So there's that uh, quote says failure is not fatal fatal and success is not final, right? So if you understand that success is short-lived, you don't know how long you're going to be at the top of your game. But in the meantime, if you also fail, that's okay too. Um, You know, enjoy the moment when you have it. If you do fail, learn from it, get up and start all over again. I think failure makes us stronger. It does. And so I think people are certainly afraid of failure. But I think, I mean, when I left my last company and started at Collier's, I mean, it was scary mm-hmm. and I was in my mid forties and I'm making this big job change and, uh, and it's been the most wonderful experience, but I had to force myself into, you have to lean into the fear. Yes. And absolutely. I think, I think that if you live your life worried about failing, you're, you won't grow. And you'll never step up. You'll never, you'll never attempt anything, right? Because right. if all you can think about is what if I fail, you're never going to take that first step. You're never going to get, you know, into that, that state of mind where you say, regardless of what happens, I'm all in. And it's hard to succeed if you don't take that step. Right. Well, and one of the things they say about women, and I've talked about this on other, um, in, in other forums is that women won't apply for a role even if it's in a company they're already in, they won't apply for another role if they don't have 80% of the skills. Wow. Men will apply with 30 or 40%. Wow. So there's this whole idea of <laughs> right, right. you don't have to check every box. Just because you don't have all of those skills doesn't mean you can't do the job. Absolutely. And, and if you surround yourself with the right people, you're going to learn. And that's how you're going to grow. Right. If you never apply for anything else, yeah. you're never going to move. <laughs> right. So this it's that true. whole idea of, yes, you may not have all those skills, but why why not try it? If it doesn't work out, then it wasn't meant to be. But at least you know that you went and tried it. Absolutely. And the biggest mistake I've made as a business owner is hiring someone for their skill set. Because the the ones that I've hired for their skill set have turned out to be a disaster, typically. <laughs> and the ones that I've hired because I just saw something in their character that I knew that they would do well, those are the ones who have been the big, biggest success. You know, hire for character, not skill set sometimes. And, and I mean, there's obviously not everything, you know medical, you know, healthcare, (laughs) you want them to have certain level of skills. But in in a lot of cases for management, for me, management comes down to is it a good culture fit? Does this person have the drive and the tenacity that I'm looking for um, in somebody who's going to be, you know, 
have some grit and and do the job? Or is this somebody who is going to rest on their laurels that they are overqualified for a position? The worst thing you can do is hire somebody overqualified who then thinks of your job as almost, you know, too easy and it doesn't require anything of them. You know, you want somebody to have a little bit less qualifications than you're looking for and fight hard to get there because that grit and that tenacity really makes all the difference in in their leadership qualities. And I think that's the key to a good leader, right? A good leader recognizes that that person doesn't have all the skills. You said exactly what I was thinking and what I've talked about with other folks. You've got that's how you identify a great leader. They yeah. build their team and those individuals fly out of the nest and go and do great things. Absolutely. That's how you true that's how you in my mind, that's how you the mark of a good leader. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so what advice would you give to 18-year-old you? Oh gosh. <laughs> you know, I think I would give the advice of and this is a lesson learned for me, knowing the difference between being a team player and becoming the doer on your team. I don't know if you've ever been in situations where you're always the one volunteering and and you become the doer, but you're afraid if you don't say yes to stuff that they're going to think you're not a team player. And so for me, I think I learned along the way that I had to set boundaries around, and I've talked with other young women about this, always be a team player. You're part of a team. Sure. But but ch- pick and choose the things so that you don't become always the doer and right. stuff's always getting put in your lap. And you can get overwhelmed. You can. Right. Yeah. yeah there was a time period in, in my career where I felt, you know, I had a young child at home and then I was also, we were, we were building a company. And so I felt the need to do everything. So there was a probably a three-year time period where I was room mom, PTA. <laughs> I was volunteering for all these different committees. I was on the board of directors of an association in our industry. I was attending every trade show. I was everywhere all the time and I got burned out so quickly. And then I took a full year off of all volunteer. Like you couldn't ask me to sell brownies at at an event. No way. (laughs) I was not volunteering for anything because it's a burnout. You know, it's a burnout process. And so I think that you're right. It's it's important to to balance that, you know, to be the doer, to be the team player. Um, But also understand that, you know, your own self-care has to come in has to come into that. Sure. And I think as, as working women, that word that we put ourselves last, right? Always. All the time. Always. Yeah. So yeah. All the time. Um, so what do you wish more people knew? You know, I think I wish more young women knew that they're not alone. Hmm. I talked about this a few minutes ago, but I think know that there are people out there that have been through this. Yeah. And so seek out women to talk to if you're, if you're struggling or you're in a place of mm-hmm. co- loss of confidence or loss of aspiration. You've you're not alone. Yeah. People have yeah. been through it before. And that's where advice really can be meaningful, I think. Absolutely. So. What has been the most surprising part of the Women's Collective to you? Gosh, I would say the response from women in Atlanta. Really? Yeah. I mean, to, to, I mean, when, of course, we launched February 27th of 2020. Wow. Great timing. Then, <laughs> right. Great timing. And then, you know, the next week was International Women's Day and our, our mutual friend, Lynn Smith, had me on headline news. I yes. went on my first national <laughs> news broadcast. And then seven days later, the world shut down. Wow. And I just remember I spent, 
you know, I spent six or eight months. I had to learn about 501c6s. I had to learn about how to how to put all the, of that together. Yes. And then I had to go figure out who I was going to invite and how what kind of programs. So there was so much effort, you know, six or eight months of, you know, hard work to get ready to launch. We had such yeah. a successful launch. And then we we hit the pandemic. And so I spent a lot of the pandemic working on building my behind the scenes. I had been blowing and going and hadn't really had a chance to step back. So in a way, the pandemic was a blessing yeah. um, because it allowed me a chance to step back a little bit and allowed us to grow. So now, like I said, we're 130 members. But I've been very pleasantly surprised with the the women that we've been able um, to include and who have joined in and yeah. who are passionate around um, the mission that we have. Yeah. And I, I call the uh, the pandemic as, as bad as it was in many, many ways. I also say that it was a blessing of time sure. because, you know, I, I did the same thing. You know, for me, my business had shut down for, for several months because we do large events. And sure. obviously when that's banned by law, right. <laughs> you're not doing not working. a lot of it. <laughs> and so, but it allowed me to step back and do some coaching. And so I learned that I had a passion for helping other entrepreneurs succeed. And it was really a blessing in my life. And had I not taken a breather, I probably wouldn't have known that for decades because I just I go 100 miles an hour all the time. Sure. And we don't slow down very often, do we? <laughs> no, I think I think I always tell people I was going about 90 miles an hour before the pandemic. Sure. Now I'm going about 120. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I feel like I just can't I, I yeah. can't keep up. It's uh, it's a good problem to have. Right. It's a great problem to have. And it's a good problem to have. But yes, there are days where I um I wonder how I'm going to get it all done. <laughs> yes, I understand. Well, delegation is what I've learned. <laughs> uh, this is true. This is true. Well, con uh, congratulations on all the success of the Women's Collective. I think that's amazing. And I hope that you guys continue to grow. Is your is your membership outside of Georgia as well? Right now, we're just focused on Atlanta. Okay. We hope at some point to take it to a national yeah. platform. But I really want to get it right in Atlanta first. And Absolutely. that's sort of what I learned with my experience with the Atlanta Commercial Board and building out that mentorship program we need time to sort of figure out a flow of events and what, like sure. I said, we're doing three kind of larger events each year. And then we're doing some offshoots, some what we call leadership and SIPs programs. Mm -hmm. um, we'll do a summer series where that'll have maybe 10 to 15 women. Okay. And those will be more intimate settings where we can do some more networking. And because again, it's, it's about connecting the women. Yeah. It's about them building their own network. And then it's about sort of growing, um, growing outside of the network and how do we influence the change. So at some point, hopefully we'll be outside of Atlanta. Oh, you, I have no doubt you definitely will. <laughs> so congratulations on all the success. Well, thank and you. I really appreciate all of your time and being here today. It was great to meet you. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for joining our guests on the Pretty Powerful Podcast. And we hope you've gained new insight and learned from exceptional women. Remember to subscribe or check out this and all episodes on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. Visit us next time. And until then, step into your own power.